Chapter 19 of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Praed. Chapter 19 A Picnic in the Mountains. Upon the following morning, when after a disturbed night Honoria entered the breakfast room, she found that Dyson Maddox had already arrived. His manly aspect, the mingled sweetness and firmness of his expression, struck her with a sudden force, which revealed too clearly how far her thoughts had wandered in another direction. "'You must have started very early,' she said. "'I left Barramunda at daybreak. The early morning is the most pleasant time for riding. I met Cathcart at the crossing.' "'He has gone, then?' "'Yes. He thought that one of us ought to be on the station. There were butchers expected.' "'I—I am glad that you have come,' said Honoria hurriedly. He looked at her gravely without replying, and she resumed in an embarrassed manner. "'I heard that you were canvassing yesterday. What news of the election?' "'It is going well for us,' replied Dyson. "'Your father is more popular than ever. The squatters will have a walk-over.' At that moment Barrington entered, and Honoria introduced the two men who had not met before. Maddox was stiff and ungenial. Barrington courteous and indifferent. Honoria was ill at ease. Her self-possession had vanished, and her complexion alternated between paleness and flushing. Dyson could not help observing that there seemed a covert understanding between her and the Englishman. The latter frequently addressed her in a low tone, as though there were some veiled meaning in his remark. When their hands touched, her eyes drooped. When she spoke to him, her voice had a faltering intonation. When she looked at him, there was a timid consciousness on her face. All these signs Maddox noted and interpreted, and the more he watched, the colder and sterner his manner became. Soon after breakfast the horses were brought round and the party mounted. Only Angela and Mrs. Ferris, both unequal to the long excursion, remained at home. Cobra Ball, leading a pack-horse, rode in front, and a tribe of kangaroo dogs brought up the rear. The air felt clear and fresh with the foretaste of winter, though the sun was powerful enough to scorch Lady Dolph's freckled complexion. The atmosphere was perfumed by wild flowers and scented gum, and the lush grass upon the plain was studded with orchids and violets. As they left the slip-rails behind, a flock of white cockatoos rose chattering and screeching from the cultivation paddock where the yellow squashes and green preserving melons were lying bare of leaves and a black gin with her head bound in a crimson kerchief, stood a picturesque object among the late corn. They crossed the river and skirted the scrub, dim with the dense luxuriance of its dark green foliage, enlivened here and there by patches of brilliant bloom, of yellow begonia and feathery muntine, while clusters of wild plums and black crimson berries announced the close of summer. All round them was the hum of forest life, Bright-hued butterflies and whirring locusts flitted among the tangled brushwood. Every now and then a rustle in the grass betrayed the whereabouts of an iguana or a snake. Sometimes they were startled by the strange cry of the tree-frog, or the hissing sound which the frilled lizard accompanies the erection of its ruff. Now they started a herd of kangaroo. The graceful brown creatures with their fawn-like eyes and drooping paws, still for a moment, then bounding in long fleet strides over the brow of the ridge, the dogs following in full cry. 
and even Cobra Ball, in spite of the encumbrance of his pack, unable to resist the infection of sport, spurred his horse and uttered vigorous halloos. "'I must have a gallop,' cried Honoria, casting a rapid glance at Barrington, and lightly touching her spirited chestnut. Accustomed to its mistress's vagaries, the animal, which was indeed the pride of Thomas Longleat's stables, shook the reins upon its neck, cleared a fallen tree, and darted at breathneck pace through the thick timber with which the hill was clothed. Dyson, with the zest of a keen sportsman, and a seat that defied accidents, pushed past Honoria in a race to the fore. It was dangerous riding. The slope was stony, encumbered with logs and brushwood, and heavily timbered. At its foot was a gully, and then a wide plain covered with the waving purple grass peculiar to that district, which conceals many a treacherous pitfall. Beyond again were ridges and never-ending vistas of trees. The Englishman, with a vivid recollection of Leicestershire runs, felt his blood rising to the sport. The kangaroos had divided, and were being pursued in different directions by the excited dogs. But one old man, bounding in a straight line across the plain, showed easiest chase, and looked as though he meant staying. The hounds, every vein in their sleek brown hides, swelling with eagerness and effort, were in hot course. Honoria was poised like an Amazon upon her saddle, her skirts brushing the grass as she rode neck and neck with Dyson. Her cheeks glowed with a brilliant carmine. A long trail of her hair, loosened by the wind, floated behind. Every now and then she darted a glance at her companion in the rear. At the foot of the opposite ridge, the kangaroo turned and faced his assailants, holding himself erect and striking with his paws at the dogs which closed round him. His tongue protruded, and the blood flowed from a wound in his side. Dyson advanced to put an end to the struggle. Honoria turned, and joining Barrington, whose horse had slackened speed, rode more slowly across the plain towards the others on her right. "'Now you have seen a kangaroo hunt,' said she. "'It is short enough, but I could gallop like that for hours. That brisk stirring of one's blood is perfect enjoyment. No danger is too great to face when one is on horseback. I sometimes go out on purpose when there is a thunderstorm rising, in order to have the pleasure of racing at home.' but there is one drawback to excitement. Someone or something is sure to suffer. I cannot bear kangaroos to be killed. I should detest fox-hunting if it were really done in cold blood. In this sort of thing one has no time to think, and as often as not the kangaroo escapes. Presently Cobra Ball rode on ahead with the kangaroo's tail swinging at his saddle, and the poor old man was food for carrion crows. They rode on through tall gum-trees and yellow wattles, with here and there a clump of grass-trees, their bare stems, tufted tops, and spear-like spikes contrasting with the lank eucalypti, and breaking the monotony of foliage. As they advanced, level pastures and undulating ridges ceased. Before them towered the rock-bound sides of the Kuron Crag. The track grew more and more indistinct, and the country became stony and arid, intersected by deep gullies and ferny ravines that afforded scant foothold for the horses and were sufficiently alarming to make the most practised bushmen careful. "'Now then,' cried Lady Dolph to Barrington as they dipped into a gully and were confronted by a stony pinch almost as steep as the crag above them, "'spur up that crawler, or he'll jib before he gets to the top. Sit forward, and lay on like old Gooseberry to his mane.' 
At last they had reached the highest spur below the Koorong precipice. It was flat as a bowling green and quite untimbered. Below it for miles stretched a sea of blue-green foliage with waves of wooded ridges. To the left lay a range of distant mountains, their rocky outlines bathed in the golden glow of Australian sunlight and flecked with the shadows that chased each other across the blue. Directly upon the right rose a forest of pines hoary with moss, their interlacing branches describing vistas of impenetrable gloom. A rocky rampart, five hundred feet in height, reared itself in front of the riders. Ferns and mountain parasites clung to its rugged sides. At its base, a little stream of clear water trickled over a bed of stones and lost itself in the scrub. The buzz of woodland life had ceased, and the stillness and solitude were almost oppressive. "'That fellow debble-debble like it there,' said Cobra Ball confidentially. Asterisk. Caban big water hole, lie along a scrub. My word, plenty fellow bunya bunya. Other fellow black men come eat, but Baal sit down here. That old woman mother along a cobra ball go bong like it this place. Black fellow say, Baal, me want em that old woman. Suppose me dig em a hole, and bury close along camp, she get up again. Me carry that old woman budgery away, and put in ground close up scrub. Mine think it Cobra Ball stop here and look after Yarraman. Baal, that fellow go along a scrub. Get the billy, Cobra Ball, and set the fire alight, cried Dyson energetically. The explorer was at his ease in such scenes as this. He chose a shady spot for the encampment and cut some grass treetops to make a couch for the ladies. We had better eat our luncheon, he said, before we attempt the waterfall. Cobra Ball filled the black quart at the spring, made a fire with twigs, and set the water to boil. Asterisk. The devil is there. There is a big water hole in the scrub, and many bunyas, a species of fur bearing an edible cone. Other blacks come and eat, but do not remain. Cobra Ball's mother died near here. The blacks said, We do not want that old woman. If we bury her near the camp, she will haunt us. We will carry her a long way and bury her in the scrub. Cobra Ball will stop here and look after the horses. He will not go to the scrub. The blacks have a superstition that the spirits of their dead haunt the spot where they die for a year. Back to text. Lady Dolph superintended the pint-pot tea, and Barrington and Miss Longleat unpacked the luncheon bags. When the meal was over, the ladies girded themselves for mountaineering and leaving their horses under the black boy's charge, the little party made their way for a half-mile through the scrub. Progress was here a matter of difficulty. Dense brushwood and closely packed saplings presented an almost impenetrable hedge, and luxuriant, large-leaved creepers hung in long wise from the branches of the tall trees. In the centre, as it were, of this wilderness, they came upon a small clear plain which skirted the edge of a deep ravine. Honoria approached lightly to the side, and holding with one hand to a tree that grew near, peered over into a chasm cleft in the mountain of rock some hundreds of feet in depth. Flowing down a subterranean watercourse, of which at a considerable height the progress was abruptly checked, a large volume of water dashed over the precipice into the pool below. "'My word,' said Lady Dolph, after having contemplated the scene for several minutes, "'it's awful grand, isn't it? But I am close up done with the walking.' 
I think that I'll take it easy for a bit.' And she sat down calmly and began to munch some wild plums which they had gathered in the scrub. "'I am in the mood to explore,' said Honoria. "'Who will come with me?' Two of the gentlemen answered to her call. Mr. Ferris produced a pocket Shakespeare and deliberately seated himself upon a log. "'Well, I am glad that someone is going to stop,' said Lady Dolph. "'Mr. Ferris can read poetry if he likes. I think I'll go to sleep. You'll find me here when you come back, and give a cooey to let us know where you are.' "'You'll come,' said Honoria to Dyson, her tone implying command. Barrington and Lord Dolph had already moved on. Soon the four figures had disappeared in the mazes of the scrub. Lady Dolph, after several attempts to draw Mr. Ferris into conversation, quietly composed herself into slumber. When she awoke, the air felt chill and damp, and it seemed as though she had been asleep for a long while. A strange sense of unreality overpowered her. She had forgotten where she was. The booming of the waterfall mingled with the tones of Mr. Ferris's voice as he fervidly ranted Othello's address to his dead mistress. Lady Dolph rubbed her eyes and looked round. Her companions had not yet returned. She began to feel a little frightened, for she had heard Mr. Ferris described in colonial parlance as cracked. She knew nothing of Shakespeare and distrusted the sound of Othello's eloquent self-upbraidings. I, I wish that you would stop, she said nervously. I don't understand all that bosh. I'd like to know the time. It seems getting late. Don't you think they ought to be coming back? It is nearly five o'clock, said Mr. Ferris, looking at his watch. My word, exclaimed Lady Dolph in consternation. If this doesn't bang everything, they must have got pushed. Dolph is such a greenhorn. If I had a stock whip, I'd crack it smart. Let us give a shout. The old voice and the young were raised in prolonged cooies. It's all right, cried Maggie. That is Dolph's voice. They are coming. But only Lord Dolph's round face and stripling figure emerged from the scrub. Where are the others? cried Maggie and Mr. Ferris. Hello, aren't they here? I stopped to cut down this staghorn fern. Ain't he a beauty, Mags? We'll put him on to our veranda post. "'By Jove, it is odd they haven't turned up. "'I have been loitering for ever so long in the scrub. "'I thought that I should have found them here. "'Miss Longleat was wild after Quantongs. "'Asterisk. "'And they said that they would come back by the gully. "'Let us coo away again.' "'And once more long musical notes hovered in the air, "'but produced no reply. "'Asterisk. "'A berry growing in the scrub, "'the kernels of which are strung into necklaces.' End of chapter 19 Read by Celine Major